This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Welcome to the Elisa Childers podcast, where we equip Christians to identify the core beliefs of historic Christianity, discern its counterfeits, and proclaim the gospel with clarity, kindness, and truth. And this is the final episode of the year. Every year toward the end of November and throughout the month of December, I take a sabbatical. And my husband takes a sabbatical. He does all my booking. He does all of the post-production on the podcast. So everything that you see, we do, we do together. So we take that time off to refresh, recharge, and spend some good family time over the Christmas season. It's always my favorite. I look forward to that every year. But this is the last episode of the year, but we have some great episodes coming for you in January. We're going to be talking with Rosaria Butterfield, Skip Heitzik, several others. We've got some really great episodes planned. Um, so be sure and subscribe if you haven't subscribed to this podcast, because you will get a notification when we come back uh, after the beginning of the year. Now, there's a few things I want to tell you about, because I won't be able to really tell you about them very much throughout the month of December, but that is that my new book, uh, along co-written with my co-author Tim Barnett of Red Pen Logic, called The Deconstruction of Christianity, what it is, why it's destructive, and how to respond, will be coming out January 30th. So this is a little early for us to begin the promotion, but I didn't want to let this opportunity pass by without letting you know about the pre-order bonuses you can get, and one of which you can even get today instantaneously. So if you want to order the book, you can order it wherever books are sold. You can go to Amazon, Christian Book, Barnes & Noble, wherever you like to buy your books, you can go there and pick up The Deconstruction of Christianity. That's a pre-order. Again, it doesn't come out until January 30th. But as part of the pre-order bonus, what you will get is right away, you will get an email that will give you a free chapter early. And it's actually our chapter called Advice, and that's where we took a whole chapter to answer the number one question that I receive when I'm out speaking, especially on the topic of deconstruction, and that question is, how do I navigate relationships with people I love who are in deconstruction? And so we took a whole chapter to unpack that question. We talk about different relationship dynamics, different relationship structures, and how that might play out if your loved one is in deconstruction. So this is a book that is for, not for the person in deconstruction. This is not the book you're going to give to your loved one who's in deconstruction, but this book is for the spouses, the pastors, the parents, and the loved ones of people who are in deconstruction and to help you understand what's happening to your loved one and how to navigate that relationship with them. So that chapter you will get immediately. And then what you will also get with your pre-order bonus is 60 days of free access to the audiobook, which Tim and I both read 
really excited about that. So to get your pre-order bonus, just buy the book wherever you pre-order it, wherever you like to buy your books. Again, Amazon, Christian Book, Barnes & Noble. Uh, there's some other retailers that, that are carrying it as well. And then go to my website. So that's alisachilders.com. And if you'll go to the landing page there, the very landing page of my website is now the landing page for the Deconstruction of Christianity book. And if you scroll down, you'll get to see the brand new book trailer that Tyndale just put out. It is phenomenal. It was professionally produced. It looks so amazing. Tim and I worked on this together uh, in Nashville in this beautiful church, and we uh, recorded our curriculum, but also this trailer. So you can check out that trailer. And then if you scroll down just below that, then you can fill out the little form where you put in your name, your email address, where you bought the book, and your receipt number. And then you submit that, and then immediately you will get an email with that advice chapter uh, for free and early. And then you'll also get 60 days access to the audiobook for free. But you won't get the audiobook till the book comes out in January, but you will get that advice chapter immediately. So again, wherever books you'd like to buy your books, pick it up, go to alisachilders.com, scroll down, fill out the form, and you'll get your pre-order bonuses. So don't let that time go by. I know we're all thinking about the holidays and the gift giving and things like that, but don't let this opportunity pass you by to miss out on getting that advice chapter early. Okay, I want to also let you know about our book club. I've mentioned this on the podcast before. I've got, gosh, I think over 8,000 people in a book club on Facebook, and we have so much fun reading through some really good books together. Well, the next book that we're going to read through is going to be The Deconstruction of Christianity. Again, that comes out January 30th. That's a Tuesday. So I will do a live stream in the book club uh, group on Facebook on Tuesday. And then every week that we read through the book together, I will do a live stream on that Tuesday. And so these will be weekly live streams. We'll meet together. We'll do Q&As. We'll talk about the material that we've read that week. And so if you want an opportunity to read through this book with like-minded people, you can go to facebook.com slash groups slash Alisa Childers Book Club, and you can get in the book club. Again, that's facebook.com slash groups slash Alisa Childers Book Club. And get your book in the meantime, because we're going to start reading it the day it comes out on January 30th. Another thing I want to mention to you is that I have new music out. I know I've mentioned this in weeks past, but it's been a while. So I just wanted to let you know, if you go to alisachilders.com slash music, you can now order a physical copy of the CD, but you can also order just the MP3s. So if you go to the landing page there, alisachilders.com slash music, you'll see that you can do the digital downloads only, and you can buy the individual songs, or you can buy the five-song EP just digitally. And that will be exclusive again to my website until January, and at which time it will go out to iTunes and Spotify and all of the places. And then the final announcement that I have for you today is that we have just completed a year of our Unshaken conference with Natasha Crane and our friend Frank Turek. It was just awesome. We had some really, really wonderful uh, opportunities to talk about sort of taboo topics that a lot of people aren't really wanting to talk about, things like deconstruction, social justice, wokeness, um, sexuality, and how the Bible talks about these things. And so we talk about all of that at our Unshaken conference. And keep your ears and eyes out on social media because we are going to be announcing four dates 
brand new dates for the Unshaken Conference for 2024. And so we're very, very excited about that. You can always go to unshakenconference.com to uh, find out, you know, if those have been announced and where they're going to be and where you can register and get your tickets and all of that good stuff. Okay, so that's the announcements out of the way. Now, what I have said in the promo for today's live stream that I'm going to talk about is this idea that the Christian gospel is really just sort of a hangover from Greek and Roman thought. Now, this I've seen this claim in several different forms, but today I'm going to be interacting with a specific claim made by Brian McLaren, who is an American author and a speaker. Uh, he was really prominent evangelical Christian thinker in the early 2000s, kind of a, a part of that early emergent movement that turned into the progressive Christianity movement. And in 2010, he came out with a book called A New Kind of Christianity, 10 Questions That Are Transforming the Faith. And I really think this book was extremely influential in forming the ideas about the gospel within the movement of progressive Christianity. And so I'm going to get into what that is in just a moment, but I want to let you know that we are going to be doing a live Q&A after I walk through some of this material that I've prepared for you today. And so if you have a question, you can go ahead and put those questions into the comment box even right now. Just do me a favor, put the letter Q or the word question before your question, because that's how I will search through some of the chat to find the questions, because there's no way I can just sit here and scroll through everybody's comments and try to find the questions. So if you will do that, put the a Q or the word question before your question, you can just go ahead and start putting those in now, and we'll get those all ready to go for you. All right, so I want to I want to talk about this argument because basically what McLaren is arguing, and by the way, what I'm presenting to you today is the material that I researched and wrote about for a research paper that I did for Southern Evangelical Seminary when I took my, my philosophy class in the spring. And again, I love SES. SES is a sponsor of our podcast. If you want more information about the great work they're doing, you can go to ses.edu slash Elisa, download a free ebook, check it out. I love SES. I've lear I always learn so, so much when I take my classes at SES, just top-notch education. I love that they have a three-pronged approach to every class, philosophy, apologetics, and theology. So that's all going to tie into every subject that they teach. And so I took philosophy in the spring, and I've always wanted to address this claim. And so I got to write a research paper about it, and I'm just going to present to you some of that information today. So in his book, A New Kind of Christianity, McLaren basically argues that things like the doctrines of original sin, final judgment, heaven and hell, and what he calls, this is his, his phrase, the biblical storyline, he says these are all products of, of the Greek and Roman influence on early Christian culture. So here's a quote from McLaren. He says, what we call the biblical storyline isn't the shape of the story of Adam Abraham, and their Jewish descendants. It's the shape of the Greek philosophical narrative that Plato taught, and that's the descent into Plato's cave of illusion and the ascent into philosophical enlightenment, and that's an end quote there. And so because this perspective was surrounded by the political atmosphere of the Roman Empire, McLaren put those things together and he coined the phrase Greco-Roman narrative. So uh, he interacts with what he calls the Greco-Roman narrative quite a bit. And so he pits that narrative against the Christian storyline of Eden, fall, condemnation, salvation, heaven, and hell, 
and attempts to demonstrate that due to this Greco-Roman influence, modern Christianity has misunderstood the gospel. And then he especially kind of equates that to people like Constantine and St. Augustine. So in other words, when theologians talk about the gospel storyline, sometimes it's laid out like creation, fall, redemption, restoration, the idea that uh, you know, you have Adam and Eve in the garden, they fall, this institutes sin and death into the world through one man, all, you know, death spread to all men. And you have this ontological fall, in other words, like this um, this state of being that gets passed on to their children, and that's an inherited sin nature. And then you have this condemnation, but you can get saved and go to heaven or hell. McLaren is saying this storyline is just influenced from Greco-Roman thought. And we've misunderstood the gospel. And then I'm going to show you kind of what he thinks the gospel should be in his book. So if he's right, then this really calls into question the salvation of every Christian who's ever admitted they're a sinner who's separated from God and in our need of in need of salvation. And so what McLaren is proposing is not just a few little tweaks, but it's it's really an entire rewrite, in my opinion. And so I won't be able to go deep into the influence of Constantine. That's like a whole big can of worms that we won't go into today. But what I do want to look at is more specifically the influence of Greek philosophy on Christianity, because that is that is a really interesting topic to, to research about. And I hope to show you that contrary to the claims of Brian McLaren, the Christian storyline as we understand the gospel is not borrowed from Plato or, or Aristotle, but it actually represents the true Christian gospel. All right, so the first thing I want to do is sort of evaluate what McLaren is saying here, evaluating his argument so that you understand what he's saying. And again, you can get his book if you want to get it, uh, you know, straight from him and all the con- I'm trying to be as fair as I can and give as much context without getting too deep in the weeds. But his book is A New Kind of Christianity. It's kind of an older book, but it was very influential in the um, progressive Christian movement. So um, he begins by explaining how Plato and Aristotle differed, right? H- how they thought about reality that was different from one another. And so he talks about how for Plato, this um, Plato had this conception of the ultimate reality, which was called the forms. And the forms were these ideals. They were unchanging, non-material. They were eternal. And um, well, material things were just shadows or manifestations of this unchanging real. So kind of like in Plato's cave that he's that he's pointing to if you're if you're familiar with that allegory, you have this guy that's kind of chained to a, a a cave and the light's coming in from behind. And remember when you were a little kid and you would make those like little shapes on the wall because the light would come through and so in this idea it's like what you're seeing on the wall, the person thought that's what was real. But they were just seeing shadows of something that was actually real, but it wasn't until they came out of the cave and they they could see that. So um, McLaren talks about how Aristotle did not believe the forms were as real as the physical world, but existed in the object itself. So that's where Aristotle and Plato differed from one another. And then he also describes the tension between Plato and Aristotle's view of change. So Plato's followers uh, basically thought that change doesn't exist, but Aristotle's followers believed that the ultimate reality is constantly changing and changelessness is just, and this is a quote from McLaren here, 
that ultimate reality, according to Aristotle's followers, is constantly changing. But changelessness is simply an idea or a mental construct, not a reality. So he talks about this debate and he says this is what animated the Greeks and later the Romans who assimilated and adopted Greek culture, creating the Greco-Roman culture. Okay, so if you're still with me, then what he attempts to do next is show how the Greek mind affected the Roman mind in three ways. And this is where this is this is where it really is pertinent to the gospel because he basically says that this way that the Greek mind affected the Roman mind went on to affect the Christian conception of the gospel. So the first thing he points to is this ancient dualism that existed where, um, in fact, the Gnostics were famous for believing this, where the material world was kind of seen as as profane or evil, and then the non-material world was more of the sacred. So that's the first thing he points to. And then second, he assumes this Greco-Roman superiority or supremacy because they had intellectual and engineering advances. So that's the second thing. And then the third thing he identifies coming from the Greek mentality is this us versus them mentality that was infused into culture. So he says that because of these three factors, the biblical data was reframed into a gospel narrative consisting of what he calls six lines. So you have the first line being creation, Eden. And the second line being fall or original sin, the third line being condemnation, the fifth line, fourth line, sorry, being Christian salvation, fifth being heaven, and the sixth being hell. So this for McLaren is his Greco-Roman six-line narrative. Now, this should sound familiar to you because this is the way many theologians frame the gospel. They may not use exactly those six lines, but that creation, fall, redemption, restoration, that is the narrative arc of our understanding of the gospel. Okay, so now he goes on to um, what compares with what. So when he talks about uh, creation, Eden— he says, really, this is really the idea of the Platonic ideal or being. And so he's, he says that for Christians, Eden is not a good Jewish garden. It is a perfect Platonic Greco-Roman garden. Now, I'm going to get to my opinions on all this in a minute. I just want you to understand what he's saying to begin with. And um, so that, that this perfect Platonic Greco-Roman garden exists in a changeless state, okay? So then the fall is not just an act of obedience, but it's a descent from changelessness to change, from Plato's world to Aristotle's world. Remember, Plato's followers thought change didn't exist. Aristotle's followers thought um, that in the ultimate reality was a, a state of constant change. And so, okay, let me make sure I'm in the right place here. Okay. Um, so at this point, McLaren introduces Theos, and this is the quote-unquote, and I'm putting in quotes because that's what it is in his book, the god of this supposed Greco-Roman version of the story, who McLaren says is really kind of more like Zeus, right? So he specifically states this is not the god who created the universe in Genesis 1, and he appeals to that word Elohim, and not the god Jesus prayed to, and that's where he references Abba. So for, for McLaren, it seems at this point, Theos, Elohim, Abba, these are all different kind of different people, right? These are different beings. And so it's Theos who is furious because his perfect world is now decaying and changing. 
And so here's another quote from McLaren. He says, on an unconscious level, being forgiven, being saved, being born again, and being justified mean being rescued from the sad story of Aristotelian becoming and restored to the high, timeless plane of perfect Platonic being so the creatures in question can be loved by Theos again. So in other words, this idea that we would be separated from a holy God, this is just coming from a Greek conception of Theos, which sounds a lot like Zeus, and it really just has to do with um, going from a state of changelessness to change and not making, you know, Theos furious and angry. And so then he compares hell with the Greek Hades, which he describes as a perfect state of unchanging torment, and heaven is an unchanging state of perfection. And so according to McLaren, like, this is not, this is not the Hebrew conception. This is not based on the Hebrew heritage of the Bible. But it's just based on the Platonic ideal, ideal followed by a, ca a fall into the cave of illusion, a condemned state of change and becoming that finally either reaches forgiveness, going back, uh, going from change back to a state of changeless perfection, heaven, or being cast into a changeless state of torment, hell. And so uh, his solution to overcoming the Greek influence is to understand the Jewish world into which Jesus is born. And so, and again, I'm still just giving you McLaren's argument with as much context as I can because I want to evaluate it fairly and, and correctly before we get into some agreements. I have some agreements with him and some disagreements. So uh, to understand the authentic Christian gospel, according to McLaren, he says we shouldn't look backwards um, to Jesus through Calvin, Luther, Aquinas, and Augustine, but we need to look forward to Jesus through Abraham, Moses, David, and the prophets. And, and again, I, I think that looking forward is important, too. I'm not saying I totally disagree with that. But in reading the Hebrew scriptures, he claims to have discovered that the Christian gospel is not based on a Platonic ideal of unchanging perfection. Instead, Eden is a good garden, not where humans engage in an ontological fall that separates from them from God, but where they lose their fearlessness in relation to God. So in other words, McLaren is saying that the idea that we have an inherited sin nature and that our sin would separate us from God, that's coming from Plato. And so according to McLaren, what it really is is just a, a picture of humans losing their fearlessness in relation to God. And so Adam and Eve leave the garden, according to McLaren, and um, experience the original command to be fruitful and multiply. And so here's what he writes about Adam and Eve leaving the garden. He writes, this is a quote, This is a classic coming-of-age story filled with ambivalence, a childhood lost, and adulthood gained. And, and from there, he describes the Jewish story. Now, remember, he said we need to go back to the Jewish story. But when he describes the Jewish story, he describes one of socioeconomic and technological uh, advancement that comes with increased moral evil and social injustice to be corrected. So McLaren's gospel, or his Jewish lens, is primarily a mission to make right perceived societal wrongs in this life, in the here and the now. So it's kind of like a social justice gospel. Okay, now we're going to get into some agreements and some disagreements. So uh, I, I don't disagree with McLaren to say that Christian theology was influenced by Greek thought. It certainly was. Um, and so if you look back to the Jews, the ancient Hebrews, 
they were primarily concerned with questions like, you know, why do the righteous suffer and the wicked prosper? You see this themes of this in Jeremiah, Job, and in Psalms. Um, they did not approach theology as a discipline in a systematic way as much as they were really drawn to the practical ramifications of their relationship with God and how God might liberate them from their oppressors. Remember, they were in captivity. They were enslaved in Egypt. And so um, then along come the Greek philosophers, and they're concerned with more of a systematic uh, approach to theorize through various disciplines. And so it's because of this early Greek thought, in my view, that early church fathers sought to systematize theology. So I would actually say that that's a positive result of that influence. Um, in other words, the Greeks were asking the right questions. I mean, Aristotle defined objective truth. He believed in objective truth. So they were asking the right questions, and the early church fathers followed that examples, that example and applied it to their understanding of God. So yes, Greek philosophy did influence the early church fathers, but I would argue largely in a good way. And they were, well, and we'll get to the, this gets really exciting for me. <laughs> so um, Diogenes Allen and Eric Springstead in their book uh, about philosophy and theology and how those kind of worked together, very, very interesting book. Um, they pointed out that if, if one wanted to completely eradicate Greek thinking from Christian theology, and this is a quote, they are really calling for the end of the discipline of theology itself, though they may not realize it. So, yes, I agree with McLaren that there was some influence of Greek philosophy on early Christian theology. Where we disagree is in its significance and in its importance. So, in my view, rather than having a corruptive effect, Greek thinking helped early Christians to ask the right questions, systematize their thoughts in an organized manner, and really bring clarity to the gospel message. Now I'm going to bring in St. Augustine, who McLaren kind of blames for some of this, but McLaren, uh, Augustine pointed out in the fifth century, here's a quote. He said, let every good and true Christian understand that wherever truth may be found, it belongs to his master. And while he recognizes and acknowledges the truth, even in their religious literature, and he's talking about the, the, the pagan philosophers, uh, let him reject the figments of superstition. So this is where we get that phrase, all truth is God's truth, right? And so the early Christian thinkers, they did exactly what Augustine is calling for here. They rejected falsehoods. They interacted robustly with Greek philosophy, as we'll see here in a moment. And they also made important distinctions between Christian thought and Greek philosophy. So in other words, they read it very critically. In fact, this research was so thrilling for me because I searched through my anti-Nicene, Nicene, and post-Nicene Church Fathers collection, and I found over 500 references to Plato alone. And that's not to mention all the other Greek philosophers that are interacted with in a, in a very significant way, people like uh, Aristotle and uh, even uh, Thales and all sorts of different Greek philosophers where these early church fathers were very, very well versed in what these Greek philosophers were saying. It wasn't like they just accidentally caught this, you know, allegory of Plato's cave, whoopsie, and that's how we formed our gospel. No, they were actually very critical readers of uh, Greek thought. So 
Although there's nothing inherently wrong with being influenced by sources outside of Christianity, early Christian thinkers rejected the philosophical ideas that contradicted scripture. And I think that is so cool because we go all the way back to the earliest Christians and we see it was scripture. It was the word of God. If anybody says anything that disagrees with scripture, they're going to go with scripture. They're going to settle their debates on scripture. So let me just give you a few examples of that. So Justin Martyr, you may be familiar with him. He was born in 100 AD and he directly interacted with Plato's ideas and he precisely explained his agreements and his disagreements. And uh, one thing that was kind of thrilling, and Justin wasn't the only one who did this, he wrote that it was actually Plato who borrowed from Moses and not the other way around. Here's a quote. He said, Plato borrowed his statement that God, having altered matter, which was shapeless, made the world, heard the very words spoken through Moses, who, as above shown, was the first prophet and of greater antiquity than the Greek writer. So Justin's saying, you know, the things Plato got right about God, he actually got from Moses. How cool is that? Uh, in his dialogue of Justin, philosopher and martyr with Trypho, a Jew, Justin specifically mentions Plato and Pythagoras as being ignorant of certain truths about the human soul. Uh, in his discourse to the Greeks and oratory addressed to the Greeks, he, Justin, again, displays an impressive and extensive knowledge of Greek mythology and culture, along with the fundamental ideas of philosophers like Thales, Epicurus, uh, Pythagoras, Sophocles, Plato, and Aristotle. So in these works, he details the primary disagreements between Plato and Aristotle, points out the inconsistencies within Plato's ideas, and then interacts meaningfully with Plato's Timaeus uh, to demonstrate Plato's acquaintance with the Hebrew scriptures. So he's not only saying, like, I think Plato got this from Moses, he demonstrates it. That's, that's how robust his knowledge was of Plato and how um, just precise he was in dividing truth from error when it came to Plato. But he wasn't the only church father that had awareness of Greek philosophy. Here's another example. This is Clement of Alexandra, born in 153 AD. And he had precise skill in separating truth from error in the works of Plato, also pointing out that what he got right about God, he borrowed from the Hebrews. And here's a quote from him. He said, Whence, O Plato, is that hint of the truth which thou givest? You have learned geometry from the Egyptians, astronomy from the Babylonians, the charms of healing you have got from the Thracians, Thracians, I'm not sure. The Assyrians also have taught you many things, but for the laws that are consistent with truth and your sentiments respecting God, you are indebted to the Hebrews. Other church fathers who demonstrated a proficiency in Greek philosophy are people like Tertullian, Origen, Eusebius. They just interacted with this stuff on such a significant level. And, you know, of course, I, did, I didn't have the space to give you all the examples, but there are just so many. And I just found the ones that I found the most exciting. So I want to point out um, maybe three distinctions between, and this is part of the disagreement I have with uh, McLaren. I, I think, he, you know, he did a pretty good job of, at least to my understanding, explaining the differences between Plato and Aristotle and how they saw the world. But when he imports the modern understanding of the Christian gospel onto that, I think that's where I have disagreements. And so the first one has to do with the doctrine of creation ex nihilo. So the church fathers were not only knowledgeable in Greek philosophy and really capable of approving true ideas within it, 
they were also really critical of the false ideas that they found there. And so one key distinction that these early theologians made between good doctrine and pagan philosophy was their absolute insistence that, contrary to what the, the Greeks believed, God had created the universe out of nothing. This really set uh, the Judeo-Christian worldview apart from all the pagan cultures. If you, you know, you can get... Um, a collection of the ancient creation myths, you know, the Babylonian, it's got several in there. And you can read, and, and very often what you see in these creation myths are um, the gods are kind of more like petty people, and they create people kind of as a slave race to meet their needs. And usually it's just a reordering of already created matter. And so the Hebrew Bible is completely unique among those other worldviews in that it teaches that God created out of nothing, this creation ex nihilo, and this was a bedrock foundation for these early Christian fathers and these thinkers. So um, several second century church fathers contradicted the Greek philosophy of their day by teaching creation ex nihilo. So one of those is Irenaeus. I love Irenaeus. He's famous for writing against heresies, which I strongly recommend that you read. He's talking about the Gnostic heresy that was coming into the church at that time, and it's just a thrilling read. But he was born in 120 AD. And and he specifically pointed out that God did not um, create out of existing matter, but rather, and here's a quote from Irenaeus, he himself called into being the substance of his creation when previously it had no existence. And Tertullian identified God as, quote, the creator of the world who produced all things out of nothing, end quote. Then you have Theophilus of Antioch who refuted the Greek poet Hesiod, I think that's how you say it, by name, and he wrote this, quote, he creates out of nothing according to his will the things that are made, end quote. Now, you might be familiar with a third-century Christian work called The Shepherd of Hermas. This was a book that was in good standing with the church. It was not considered scripture, but it was considered to be helpful. And this book declared that God, quote, made all things out of nothing, end quote. Even St. Augustine, who McLaren kind of blames for, uh, you know, the influence of Greek philosophy, he refutes the Greek idea of creation out of already existing matter in his famous book, Confessions, which, by the way, it's the Christmas season. If you've never read Confessions, pick up Confessions by St. Augustine. I, I've always told people it's it's my second favorite book next to the Bible, and just read it, Confessions. But in Confessions, Augustine writes this, For you, O Lord, made the world from formless matter, which you created out of nothing. So in light, there was so much precision uh, with which the early church fathers interacted with Greek philosophers, not just Plato and Aristotle, but others, and incisively separated truth from error, and even demonstrated the Hebrew influence on Plato's knowledge. When you consider these things, McLaren's claim that they were somehow just accidentally deriving their gospel narrative from Greco-Roman culture, it just evaporates. And again, I think the Greeks were asking the right questions. They they we can thank them for helping us systematize theology and ask questions and organize information into this way. And what they got right, the early church fathers didn't hesitate to affirm, but what they got wrong, they were <laughs> incisive in showing what they got wrong. All right, that was the first thing. So that's creation ex nihilo. That's a big difference between the Plato and Aristotle deal versus our understanding of the Christian gospel. Here's the second one. The Greco-Roman narrative is very different from the Christian gospel in some very significant ways. So 
first, let's take this. Um, earlier, I mentioned that McLaren said that the biblical description of Eden is not the static and absolute perfection. Um, I agree with McLaren there. He absolutely rightly points that out, that in the Hebrew Bible, God calls his creation good. This is in Genesis 131, but doesn't use the word perfect. I have no disagreement with him about that. But what I do disagree is his characterization that this perfect changeless state is the common understanding of modern Christians on this point. This is this is not true. He gives no reference, no footnote to any Christian claiming that Eden is some sort of, you know, platonic state of unchanging perfection. Rather, traditional Christian theology holds that the word um, good in this context just means it's worthy of condemnation. In fact, that's a quote from uh, commentator Kenneth Matthews. There, to my knowledge, there's no seminary teaching theology this way. There's no evangelical seminary saying, yes, you know, it's this changeless state. No, in fact, many times as I've studied theology, it's been pointed out that word shouldn't be perfect. That word is good. And there's a difference there. So um, I agree with him. That is what the Hebrew Bible is saying. But I don't know any Christians who are teaching, at least, you know, in in positions of of authority teaching that it's this platonic state of unchanging perfection. So it's he's just it's a bit of a straw man I think there. And so next he's uh, talks about the fall and he says this is sort of like Plato's descent into the cave of illusion. Um so if you're unfamiliar again with Plato's cave allegory it really has to do with ignorance. Um, you know, person is chained to a wall in a cave and they can only see shadows of reality. And so it's not till he's brought out of the cave that he can apprehend what's actually real. And that's when he knows that what he was used to seeing before wasn't real. And so in this scenario, it's knowledge that saves him. Um, but according to the Bible, according to the modern understanding of the gospel, the fall is not about knowledge or ignorance. It has to do with man's rebellion against a holy God. What saves is not knowledge, but trusting in Christ and his finished work on the cross. So again, it, it, it doesn't, there's not enough in common, I think, to make the claim that Christianity is sort of borrowed from these ideas. And so let's talk about the next line in his Greco-Roman narrative, which is condemnation. And this is where McLaren first puts in the ideas of Aristotle, claiming that change and becoming represent the Christian understanding of fallen life on earth. But according to Christian theology, change isn't what's wrong with the world. Um, in fact, the gospel message of Jesus himself was repent and believe the gospel. And biblically, that word repent involves change. I mean, by definition, it means changed. And it's characterized as a virtue, not as something that's negative. So in this, in this sense, it isn't enlightenment that saves, but rather faith accompanied by a change of heart. So change is a big part of that. Again, so it's just it doesn't line up. And the next line of McLaren's Greco-Roman narrative is salvation which he describes this way. This is a quote. Theos, remember, that's that kind of pagan god that he's importing, or he's using the word theos to say that, you know, it sounds a lot like Zeus, right? So theos finds a way to forgive this fallen, dropout, broken, detestable creation for its descent from perfect holy being into pathetic, detestable becoming. And so he characterizes the Christian position as a struggle to return to a changeless state of perfection. But again, the Christian gospel does teach that humans are inherently sinful, and but it doesn't teach that change is evil or that the answer to that inherent sinfulness is to become changeless. Rather, Christianity teaches that salvation comes by grace through faith alone. And so then this brings us to the final line in his narrative, which is heaven and hell. And in his view, these are copies of the Platonic ideal and Greek Hades. 
But the Christian understanding of heaven and hell are not places of unchanging perfection, but they're eternal destinations where the souls of people will exist either in torment or in the joy of the fullness of the presence of God. So while McLaren's advice is to recapture a Jewish vision of Jesus— I disagree with him on what that is. I mean, look, unless you were in that culture, we're all doing our best to understand it, right? And that should be our goal. We need to understand the culture into which Jesus was born, the culture of the Roman Empire. Uh, That helps so much for us to discern even how to understand different parts of our Bible, to understand it in context. Um, But McLaren's Jewish understanding just sounds so much in his book like social justice theory. And it's really devoid of a sin and redemption narrative. And so contrary to what McLaren teaches, and this is just kind of my conclusion here, the Greek influence on early Christian theology was not corruptive um, in that it caused the modern understanding of the gospel to be perverted. But rather, I think it inspired early Christian thinkers to ask good questions, engage meaningfully with the philosophy of the day, rejecting what was false and embracing what was true. So I don't agree with McLaren that— the creation, fall, redemption narrative is borrowed from Greco-Roman philosophy. They, they don't have enough in common. Um, and yes, Greek thought influenced Christian thought, but I think mostly in a good way because those church fathers were pretty sharp. They were really smart, and they were interacting with this stuff very, very precisely and incisively. Okay, those are my thoughts on that. And now I will go to questions. So if you're just joining us, uh, you can put your questions in the chat box. Any, you know, it doesn't have to be about this material. It can be about whatever you want to talk about. And just put the word question or a capital Q um, uh, before your, your question. And I will just get to as many as I can. So this first question is from Michael Barnard. I want to know if the rapture doctrine would be considered escapism. I believe wholeheartedly in the rapture. What are your thoughts? Thanks for your question, Michael. I don't take a public position on eschatology. In my view, uh, I've I've studied it pretty intensely, and um, I, I learned to be a little more humble about my eschatological opinions after I studied it in depth a few years ago. So in my view, any eschatological view that has Jesus physically returning in the future is orthodox. Now, um, I'll be honest with you, I probably lean toward that premillennial view. Uh, I think it probably makes the most sense of Scripture, but again, I hold that very, very humbly. And within that view, is it going to be, you know, pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib? So um, rapture doctrine— could be considered escapism. I mean, I suppose somebody could think it that way, but it doesn't matter what somebody might consider it to be if it's biblical. If it is biblical, and this is where I, you know, I'm not entirely sure if I'm honest, if it's biblical that there is going to be this premillennial, pre-trib rapture, then it's not necessarily escapism if it's true. Um, I have friends who hold to a pre-wrath view. Um, others hold to a mid-tribulation view where it's not—I I don't know if you could really call that escapism at that point because you will endure some of the, you know, the suffering that comes along with those times. But again, I, I just—I'm I, not confident enough in an eschatological position to say, in my view, any view that has Jesus returning in the future physically is an orthodox view. It is, you know, and then there's a lot of debates and a lot of spectrum in between there. So— um, that would be my best answer to that, Michael. Thank you for that question. She's Moonlight is asking, can Christians separate art from the artist? 
Are we allowed to listen, watch things created by people who have flawed or hateful views toward Christianity if we understand their views are false? Um, so I think this is an important question. And I would say that, of course, you can separate the art from the artist. I think that just like we were just talking about with St. Augustine saying, you know, basically all truth is God's truth. So a pagan is going to get something right once in a while. Now, the questions I would ask myself is, you know, what is your level of maturity? Are you being influenced unduly? Are you in the Word of God as much as you're taking in some of these other things? I don't think we need to be afraid of th uh, things that are created by people who are, you know, even flawed or hateful toward Christianity, as long as we are practicing good discernment by keeping our Bibles open and making sure that we're not being more influenced by those things than we are by Scripture. And again, you know, I mentioned maybe your level of maturity. If you're—I don't know who, who asked this question, but if you're maybe a 13-year-old uh, person who's young in your faith and you're asking a good question here, though, I think this is a good question to be asking— um, I think you need to consider different factors. You know, what is your maturity level? Are you being influenced? Um, but I mean, there there are some seriously cool worldview points in even things like the the Marvel movies. Now, if watching the Marvel movies is going to stumble you in any way, then don't do it. I mean, flee anything that's going to cause you to stumble. But if you're able to pick things out, and you know that might differ from person to person. Just make sure you're spending as much time in the Word of God as you are with these other things. And then I would also say, if anything crosses a line to where it, it's going to be outright unglorifying to God by you taking this in, like gr graphic sexual scenes or uh, something that—and one, one of the ways I think about it, too, is, is their redemption. Are the villains portrayed as— you know, do you see the consequences of the actions of the villains or do they get away with it? And that's presented as fine. Being aware of all these different types of questions, one book I would recommend is the Mama Bear Apologetics book, the first one. We talk a lot about that in this book. And um, even when it comes to discernment about how the villains are portrayed, how the heroes are portrayed. And so I think if you are analyzing—I mean, I, t I read a lot of really bad books. I read a lot of really heretical books. I, I take in a lot of that stuff um, for the purpose of providing content for you guys to be able to discern it. And so I think that this is a good question for you to ask. And if you have a question about anything, you probably don't need it. I don't think you need to take a legalistic approach, but if you if there's one particular thing you're asking this about that maybe the Holy Spirit there's some conviction about, and maybe you're like, oh, but I really kind of just want to keep it's it pricks my flesh in a certain way, makes me feel a certain way. Maybe you could just put it down for a little while. Maybe you don't need it. Take a break from it and fill yourself with truth. Fill yourself with the Word of God. Um, but no, I don't think that you should take a hard line that you can never watch or listen to things created by people who have flawed or hateful views toward Christianity. Um, because a lot of times, I find as well, they end up demonstrating accidentally how, um, I want to say, ugly their worldview is. So often you see some of these TV shows and you're like, man, they don't realize it. But they are absolutely doing a commercial for whatever the opposite of this is because it is just not a beautiful worldview. So I hope that helped you uh, a little bit there. Okay. Um, here's an interesting question from Rick McCleary. When you pray, do you picture—what do you picture in your mind? Do you picture an image of Christ or the throne room or something else? 
Hmm. Hmm. I don't know. I don't think I picture anything. Um, that I, that's a great question, Rick. I don't think I do picture like a face or something. Um, I have to think more about that one. I think I just, you know, I know God. God does not have a body. He's everywhere all at the same time. So I just picture that he's there, but I don't think I see something in my mind. But I'll have to think about that. It's Sage, former Christian here, not here to cause any chaos or troll, just to listen and ask questions. Well, you're you're welcome to be here. We're glad you're here. It's Sage. Um, does uh, Barb is asking, does the term progressive equal the same as New Age in reference to McLaren? I don't think you could use those terms synonymously, although I do find a lot of New Age ideas within progressive Christianity. In fact, I wrote a blog post many years ago, and the title was kind of, you know, catchy and provocative, like seven ways New Age and progressive Christianity are basically the same thing. And so I do point to some similarities, um, but I don't know if I would definitely compare somebody like a Richard Rohr more to New Age thought than I would McLaren. Um, but that's a good question. Uh, I don't think so. Okay. Um, Lolly is asking, is it biblical for someone to declare or decree something over someone's life? I know this isn't related to your talk, but I'm puzzled when I hear this. So I think what you're talking to uh, or talking about there, Lolly, is this idea of de declaration prayers. And there's a stream within the charismatic church. Certainly not all charismatics would agree with de declarative prayer. In fact, many have taken positions against it. Um, but there is this approach to prayer that your words sort of have creative power. So when you declare something or decree something to be true in the name of Jesus over someone's life, that you are sort of in a way making that happen. And I do not see any biblical precedent to pray that way. In fact, whenever it comes to prayer, I just always go back to Jesus. When Jesus literally said, pray like this, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. And you, know, you have the Lord's prayer there as an example. And he does pray, deliver us from evil. You know, he's asking God to deliver from um, evil. And and some of us, you know, we've experienced evil, even demonic oppression and things like this. And so it's perfectly appropriate to pray against those things, um, to ask for deliverance from those things. But very often people will say, you know, I declare this to be done in the name of Jesus. And I don't think that's a biblical way to pray. I don't see precedent for that in the scriptures. That certainly wasn't how Jesus taught us to pray. And it sounds a lot like the New Age concept of manifest, you know, manifesting, um, where you kind of think something or say something and you can um, cause it to become a reality just with your thoughts. And so my guess is that it's probably influenced a little bit by New Age thought. But, um, yeah, I, I don't think it's biblical to do that. Now, I don't certainly think someone's going to go to hell if they do that. Um, you know, I, I think that there's so much grace in us all learning how, how to do these things. But I would just say, you know, I would pray like Jesus taught us to pray. I always, you know, go there. You don't have to do some big fancy thing. Okay. Darren is asking, should thoughtful Christians write CCM worship songs under the Bethel Music Collaborative banner? Um, hmm. I, I don't think 
that, uh, Darren, that, that they should. I can't see any redemption that could happen from that, only confusion. I think that uh, it's my position, and I've gone public about this as well, that Christian worship leaders should do their best to avoid Bethel songs at this point, because not only are you um, supporting them financially when you sing their songs in your churches, um, but you're sending the message that you want more of this, like, let's do more of this. And so I think thoughtful Christians should probably not do that, because I think that would cause more confusion than it would clarity. Like, even if they could get a good song in there, because even Bethel writes good songs, some good songs. Um I, I think it would just cause more confusion. That's my opinion, uh, but that's what I've got for that. Okay, Allison, have you read Michael Heiser's book, Unseen Realm? What are your thoughts? Uh, what Wondering what your thoughts are if you have them. Thank you. So, Allison, I read about half of it. I did not finish it. I started a few years ago, but I uh, I could say I'm kind of regularly a listener of the Naked Bible podcast. Of course, Michael Heiser has gone on to be with the Lord now. Um, but I have heard him lecture about the Unseen Realm enough to where I think I'm familiar with what he's saying. And my thoughts are, I have some disagreements with Heiser, but I don't think what he's teaching is unorthodox or heretical. Uh, it's very clear that when he talks about the Unseen Realm and it has to do with the Divine Council, and it makes sense of some of these Old Testament scriptures that kind of seem bizarre otherwise, um, I don't think it's heresy. He's very clear that when he talks about these little G-gods, because the Bible even talks about certain beings that way, these are created beings. These are He said he's even comfortable calling them angels. So he's not talking about gods that are co-equal or co-eternal with the Creator God. Um, but yeah, I think it's very, it's interesting. It's very fascinating. Um, I agree with him on some things and there's other disagreements I had uh, with him, but I loved his podcast. I love the Naked Bible podcast. Um, and uh, yeah, the church is is missing a great saint there when he went to be with the Lord. Um, okay. What are McLaren's sources for Hebrew thought? Oh, it, like, okay. When you talk about non-biblical man-made traditions, like Mishnah, things like that. I don't think he... I don't think he's referring to those. Um, I'd have to go back. It's been a while since I've read the book because um, I just kind of reviewed that section to do this research. That is a good question. I don't want to answer wrongly, so um, I'm going to just not answer that one because I'm not sure. I'd have to go back and look. Okay, I'm going to take a quick drink of water. Okay, it's Sage. We hear about supernatural events yet no evidence except hearsay. Ultimately, they said it, that means it happened. Seems uh, to set the expectation that reports or documents are enough. Okay, I'm not sure I understand that. Seems to set the expectation. Okay, my thoughts. Well, I actually, I'm not sure I agree. I'm not sure I agree that we have no evidence for supernatural events. Take, take um, the Big Bang, okay? So, we know scientifically that the universe exploded into existence out of nothing from singular starting point. Um, that's not controversial. Now, scientists, in fact, um, Stephen Hawking famously had to redo his model because the implications for the existence of a cause for that were pointing toward a supernatural thing. He didn't he didn't like that, so he had to kind of reframe the his creation model. And it's above my pay grade to be able to articulate what those models are. But we know that the universe exploded out of existence out of nothing. So here's my question. When we're looking for evidence, we're not just going based on, you know, somebody said, oh, this happened. 
Um, although I will get to the resurrection a little bit and how that might relate to the resurrection. This is a really good question. But let's just think about the universe exploding into existence out of nothing. It makes more sense to me that, and I'm talking about just from a scientific perspective, that something caused nothing to become something rather than nothing caused nothing to become something, okay? So if the universe exploded into existence out of nothing, it either had a cause or it didn't. It, it, to me, you wanna talk about a supernatural, miraculous claim, something becoming something out of nothing with no cause for no reason. Nothing is just nothing. It's nothing is no thing. By very definition, nothing does not exist. And then something happens. So the way I see it is which makes more sense scientifically, that it had a cause or that it does not have a cause? Well, it makes a heck of a lot more sense scientifically that something would cause that. So then we have to ask the question, what would cause something like that? And this, honestly, I, there are quotes from all sorts of atheist and agnostic scientists who this, this is a big, like, thorn in their side because they realize the implications of this question. Um, great book, if, you, if you're open to reading it, it's Sage, is by a Catholic philosopher named Ed Fazer. And now this is a book that he wrote. Um, I, I want to get the title right for you. It's, I, it's something superstition. Um, Fazer, let me look it up because I want to give you the right one. The Last Superstition by Ed Fazer. Um, now, this, this is an older book, and he was refuting the new atheists who are kind of, I know that's not even in style anymore, really, but he brings up some really great points and arguments, and he has a lot of these quotes in there from these agnostic and um, atheist scientists. So if it had a cause, which we know that nothing begins to exist without a cause. I mean, that's a scientific principle, right? Nothing begins to exist without a cause. Now, if the universe was eternal, it wouldn't need a cause. Then it could just be eternally existing and it wouldn't need a cause. But we know that it did begin to exist. So it has to have a cause. So what could cause a universe to, to explode into existence out of nothing? Well, it would have to be something that was extremely powerful to make something like that happen. It would have to have intelligence because there'd be decision making. You look at the fine tuning of the universe and it's balanced on a razor's edge. It would have to be outside of space, outside of time, and outside of matter in order to cause space, time, and matter to explode into existence out of nothing. Well, this is what we call God, right? And so I'm certainly not proving the Christian God with this, but there are some attributes that this cause, whatever you want to call it, I call it God, would have to, would have to possess. So to me, it's a much more reasonable conclusion that there is evidence for a cause of the universe. Okay, now let's let's go to what you might be referring to here when you say supernatural events that have no evidence except hearsay. Ultimately, they said it, that means it happened. Well, let's take the resurrection. I actually don't think that is the approach. Like if there was just 12 guys from the first century saying, hey, this guy raised from the dead and then, you know, great. And, and I, I wouldn't necessarily be inclined to believe them. But virtually all scholars that have studied, have produced critical scholarly works surrounding the time and the resurrection of Jesus, and I'm talking about even atheist ones and agnostic ones, they all agree on certain facts surrounding the resurrection of Jesus. Now, they certainly don't all agree that he was resurrected, but virtually all scholars will tell you that Jesus existed as a real person, 
There's some fringe that don't, but most scholars, even famously skeptical Bart Ehrman, wrote a whole book on the existence of the historical Jesus. So that Jesus existed, virtually all scholars will grant that he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. Virtually all scholars will grant that his brother James was a skeptic until he had an experience that he described as seeing his brother alive after he was dead. And then he becomes the head of the church, like radical change. Virtually all scholars will will, uh, grant that the Apostle Paul was successful and powerful in persecuting and murdering Christians in high regard for that. And then he had an experience that he described as encountering the resurrected Jesus. And then we see Paul, and this is what all scholars will grant, you see a radical change in him where he's now willing to be tortured, shipwrecked, starved, stoned, beheaded, maintaining that testimony to be true when it gained him nothing. He went from high power, um, in good rapport politically and religiously, to being stoned and beaten and imprisoned. And he maintained that testimony to be true. That's not just somebody saying... I said it happened, therefore it did. You're actually seeing people, the, the results of that live out. And then finally, virtually all scholars will grant that the closest followers of Jesus believed they saw him alive after he was dead and maintained that testimony through torture and even being willing to be murdered. And the way I think about that one is that's really strong evidence in the most reasonable, again, explanation of that is that Jesus was raised from the dead. So I would say maybe as you think this question through, try to think of a different way to explain that evidence, you know, try to try to try to explain those facts. And by the way, about 70, 75 percent of scholars will grant an empty tomb, that there was an empty tomb. That's a lot of really strong evidence that there really was a resurrection. And so I suppose, you know, as you think this question through, just try to What's a, what's a more reasonable explanation than that he was raised from the dead? And the way I see it is that, first of all, if you look at, you know, the resurrection is not the greatest miracle in the Bible. Actually, the resurrection is easy if God created the universe out of nothing. If God created the universe out of nothing, if he can create life out of nothing, then he can resuscitate an already existing body, right? Um, Norm Geisler put it this way, it's no problem turning water into wine when you can make water out of nothing. So maybe those are just a couple of ways to think about it. Um, Okay. Let's see. Have you considered having Nancy DeMoss as a future guest? My wife has benefited from her teaching. Um, I've, you know, I, I've, I will consider that. I, I'm not that familiar with her work, although I've heard her name in, uh, you know, in a positive way. So I will check it out. Um, Heavenbound says, why do you think progressive Christianity denies PSA, penal substitutionary atonement? All right, I'm going to get a quick drink of water first. Okay. So uh, for anybody who's unfamiliar with that term, penal substitutionary atone- atonement, When we look in the New Testament, there are several different ways that the Bible talks about what Jesus accomplished on the cross. And as biblical Christians, we should affirm everything the scripture says. This is why I really don't like the phrase atonement theories, because it suggests that you just need to pick one, right? You pick one over the other. When really, as biblical Christians, we should affirm everything that the Bible says about atonement. Now, substitutionary atonement is the idea that Jesus is our substitute. 
um, that there's a sacrificial element to his death. And then you add the word penal, and that has to do with punishment. Now, sometimes I've seen progressive Christians conflate and confuse what's called penal substitutionary atonement with penal satisfaction theory. Penal satisfaction theory is really what Anselm came up with in the Middle Ages. I affirm that too. That has to do with Jesus satisfying the wrath of God. I think that is purely biblical. It's also biblical that Jesus took our punishment as our substitute, making atonement for our sins. And so this is something that is largely rejected within progressive Christian theology. Uh, So the question is, why do I think progressive Christianity denies this doctrine? Um, Well, I can, it's it's always hard to judge motives, so I'll just go to what I've read from progressive Christians in their, you know, to my best uh, way I can talk about their explanation of this question. Um, so, oh, wait, let me go back to the question. Okay, so why? Um, very often I think they mischaracterize it. I talked about this in my book, Another Gospel, where they're, they, they characterize penal substitutionary atonement theory as like this petty, vindictive, mean God who just wants his pound of flesh. He just has to have some whipping boy. And I don't think that's the proper characterization of it because you have Jesus is God incarnate. It's not like God's just looking out going, oh, I need some hapless victim to punish. He knows there's no worthy sacrifice. So instead of pulling out a hapless victim, you have the incarnation, God in flesh, Jesus saying, I'll do it. I will do it. I will become the perfect sacrifice. Um, so why is that uh, denied? I think often they don't understand it. Some some do. I, I think some don't because of the way they mischaracterize it. But I also think they deny it because um, if you have to back up a little bit in the theology. So in most progressive Christian theology that I've read and encountered, there's also a denial, as we just kind of saw with Brian McLaren, a denial of the idea that we have an inherited sin nature and certainly that our sin would separate us from God. So if you don't think your sin would separate you from God, but you just need to like lose your fear, like McLaren said, your fearlessness in relation to God, and you just need to realize your belovedness, you know, cast off your shame, whatever it might be, then Jesus dying a bloody death on a cross becomes kind of horrific and not in a good way, right? If you don't think that you're even separated from God in the first place, well, you don't need Jesus' atoning sacrifice on the cross. And so the cross really becomes more like um, Jesus being a moral example to follow, something along those lines. And so many will say they deny it because they think it's a pagan influence on early Christianity. I think uh, Rob Bell was one of the early people saying this, that the, you know, the, the doctrine of penal substitutionary atonement was just the church doing their best to interpret what was going on with Jesus through the lens of the pagan nations doing their blood sacrifices. And of course, Israel in that view was just following the pagan nations. But it really all comes down to your view of scripture. If you just believe in what sometimes is called the textual God, in other words, what's written about God by humans, and you don't think all scripture is inspired by God in the classic sense that God breathed it out through human authors, well, then you could just say, well, they they didn't understand God. They were doing their best to understand God in their times and place, but God wouldn't have required that of them. But if you go with what the book actually says, what scripture actually says, you have Yahweh instituting the sacrificial system with the ancient Israelites. You have the atoning sacrifices, the guilt offering, the sin offering, and these made atonement for sin. And then, of course, Jesus 
in the uh, upper room the night before he was betrayed, quoting from Isaiah 53, saying, what is written about me has its fulfillment. And of course, in Isaiah 53, we have this idea of sacrifice. We have, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He is put into grief. You have this suffering servant taking on the sins of the world. And um, Jesus is saying, that's me. So I think it's all in how you approach the Bible. If you think that it was just human beings writing their best understandings of God, well, then you can you can reject these things. But if you believe that the entire scripture is God-breathed, then you have to look at what Yahweh told Moses, what Yahweh instituted with Israel, what Jesus said about what he was accomplishing on the cross. And I don't think you can get around penal substitutionary atonement if you approach the scripture as if it's God-breathed from Genesis to Revelation. So I hope that helps. Charles, what is your most fun way to absorb the scripture into your heart? Um, Oh, I love this question. Uh, The most fun way. Well, I, I love listening to really good Bible teaching which helps me, you know, with the culture and the, the cultural surroundings. I love re- getting lost in commentaries, just learning about the context and things like that. So I uh, appreciate that. Um, okay. Let's see. If anybody has any more questions, I know we're a little bit over our time, but if you have any more questions... I will search through this one more time just to see if I missed any. Um, What's my favorite hymn or carol and my favorite thing about Christmas? I think my favorite Christmas hymn is O Holy Night. And my favorite thing about Christmas is being together and refreshing, recharging, pondering the incarnation. Man, you guys, the incarnation is a deep, deep doctrine to think about, especially at Christmas. I mean, when you think about, sometimes it just blows my mind to think about God in flesh, and Jesus is still in a human body in heaven, and and that he would give up what he gave up for us. Absolutely blows my mind. And so I love pondering those things and baking bread. I bake a lot of bread. (laughs) All right, you guys. Well, God bless you all so much. Thank you for tuning in. And uh, we'll try to do more live streams. I don't don't do too many. I should do more. I really love it. I love interacting with you guys in this way. Don't forget, get your pre-release wherever books are sold, The Deconstruction of Christianity, what it is, why it's destructive, and how to respond. And then go to elisachilders.com, put in your receipt information, and get your pre-order goodies where you're going to get a, a, a chapter immediately, our advice chapter. And then when the book comes out, you'll get 60 days access to the... Um, 60 days access to the audiobook. All right. All right, guys. Well, God bless you. And just remember as we pursue Christ to keep a sharp mind, a soft heart, and a thick skin. We'll see you after the new year. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. 
so he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.